I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan. Coming to you on an overcast but warm fall day in the mountains of Utah. Before we begin, I'll indulge in a quick bit of self-promotion. I have a new Redbubble store. For those that don't know, Redbubble is a service that allows artists to upload their designs for printing on dozens of different media. You can head on over there for matte prints from all of my books, or to get yourself some fancy powder mage swag. Additionally, I'm making just one public appearance this year, and that's at Brandon Sanderson's mini-convention in Provo, Utah, on November 22nd and 23rd. I'll be there to chat, and we'll have books to sign and sell. Now on with the show. My guest this week is Canadian actor Anthony Lemke. Anthony will be known to American audiences as the character of Three in the sci-fi drama Dark Matter, and as coach Marcus Gilday in the college sitcom Blue Mountain State. He has an extensive catalog of parts in television and film, and has acted in both French and English. I ask Anthony for advice on how to read a pilot script, and we talk at length about becoming best friends with insecurity, planning out your life as a creative, an actor's relationship with the writer of a script, and how we try to understand people we may not agree with. Enjoy my conversation with Anthony Lemke. You, you went to law school when you were, what, like 37? Uh, no, a little younger. But um, uh, I guess when I finished, yeah, sure. But I started... Um, I started when I was in my early 30s, and it's a four-year program up here in um, in Quebec because you're doing a double degree. You get civil law and common law, and so it ends up being a little longer than your average law degree. So, uh, yeah, it's just something I always wanted to do, and you hit a certain age where you think, I'm not going not gonna to take you know full time off my life to go do something else um, when you've got kids and responsibilities and whatever. So I just, been, I just got married, and... Um, you know, I was working as an actor and that was going well. And, um, uh, yeah. So in the end, um, it was just something that the timing was right. We did it and it, yeah, it really changed the, the course of our life. Not because in the end I practiced law forever, but because, you know, it brought us to Montreal and all our kids ended up being born here. And, um, and it, it exposed us to a, a different style of life than we otherwise would have been exposed to. And, uh, it's a great, great degree to, to get specifically this dual degree, this, you know, civil and common law. I and mean, those are the two, the two major legal traditions in the world. So in the end, it, it ends up really teaching you a whole heck of a lot about how to, how to think about society and um, incredibly useful. And then I circled back around to it um, after Dark Matter. Uh, and I did my, um, it took a couple of years off again when I moved back here to Montreal after Dark Matter and um, finished it. So I did my bar, my bar school, unlike in America where it's like a bar exam. Uh, here it's a, it's school. So you go back to school again. This was like 12 years after I graduated and um, went back and did the bar school and then did my articles and uh, worked for a little while at a, at a law firm as well. So yeah, it's nice to be able to dip in and out of that, um, those kinds of worlds. Uh, it, to be honest, it's like, it's the, it's the great gift that you're given as an actor. Um, you have a very non-traditional life. You are, are used to many things that, well, you develop uh, 
a facility with uh, or a comfort with many things that would would scare most people, like in financial insecurity, uh, constant rejection, inability to to predict uh, what your career will look like uh, two three years down the road. You know, every single job that ends, you think, "Ah, is my last job." For you, <laughs> it's kind of thing, right? It's the way it works. It's not just actors. There's lots of people who have those kinds of those kinds of jobs, which are, I guess are more common now. But the point is, you develop, you either develop a comfort with that and see the positive in it, which is this idea of being able to to jump into other things because why not? You know, it's not like tomorrow is spelled out. So spell it out for yourself, that kind of thing. See, that's interesting because it's it's a very similar experience for writers with uh, with novelists. You kind of have that same sort of feast or famine. You know, maybe I've got a great contract right now, but I have no idea if that contract will, you know, once it's finished, I don't even know if the books will sell and, and they'll, they'll print the next books. Yeah, and yeah. and even if everything goes well, your 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 next series might bomb. Right. And so you do have that that same thing. And I, I was thinking about that this morning of that that similarity of uncertainty, because, you know, kind of uh, at least from my perspective, we're kind of trained as a society to look at actors as kind of these big, a big deal, you know, like you see actors and, and it's, it's probably just kind of a, a, an artifact of, of kind of, you know, the news and the tabloids all telling you about the tens of millions of dollars and the lavish lifestyles and things like that. (laughs) American actors. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I, I imagine that most, even the vast majority of American actors are nothing anywhere close to what the top, you know, 0.1% of actors are. Yeah, I think that's accurate. It, it feels like um, that we kind of need to be, have a better perspective of kind of creative professionals. Um, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before on the podcast that you, when when I tell people I'm an author, people either assume I'm a millionaire or I'm like a troglodyte living in my mom's basement. Exactly. Uh, especially a fantasy author. Yeah. And, and people don't really get that there's an in-between, that there's, there's this whole like group of kind of working authors and working actors, working creative professionals that do their job yep. and just kind of get through it and do the next job. And, and, you know, they're worried about, you know, their retirement. They're worried about how to provide for their family all of this stuff. And I, I really was curious about your perspective on that. Well, listen, uh, it's, I think you, you've nailed it. I mean, that is the, the overwhelming majority of actors. Um, we, I imagine it's a little bit like you guys, when, when you land on something that hits and does well, then yeah, you can make a lot of money, but it's time limited. I mean, it's pretty rare that you land in a series that lasts, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. I mean, those guys, especially if they're American series, I mean, even within Canada, if you land in a series like that, yeah, you probably don't have to work again in your life if you're not an idiot, right? If you didn't spend blow all your money on stupid things while the series is going on, if you you know invested in the future and did whatever, you know, even in Canada with the with the sort of smaller market we've got, um, I mean, I shouldn't say that um, in the sense that pretty much everything I've worked on has always been sold internationally, has been shown in, in America. But it's a different it's a different labor market in Canada in the sense that the Canadian actors the wage rates are just different. They're great. I'm not complaining compared to, you know, compared to working as a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer, you can do, you know, in certain years you can do very well and in other years, you know, not working, you don't do very well at all. So, uh, it is a little different between Canada and the States. Um, but I think you've nailed it. Most people I know, and when I got into the industry, um, absolutely you deal with this, you know, especially when, for instance, you get into the industry and you meet your future wife's parents and, you know, they're an engineer and a teacher and they assume that 
that really I'm either going to be the troglodyte or I'm going to be the superstar millionaire who's divorced 17 times and uh, I'm not a, a, a good candidate for their, for their daughter. But in the end, most of the artists I know have really very normal lives, right? Because most of us aren't on the front of tabloids. Most of us do well enough to support our families and pay our mortgages and live in decent neighborhoods if we're lucky, you know, and if we're still in it 25 years on, it's because it has, you know, the industry has been good to you. And we live, like you said, pretty, uh, pretty commonplace lives with the single exception of we become best friends with insecurity and uncertainty. <laughs> that's, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, it's, you know, I talk to my buddies, my high school buddies that have normal jobs and, and, yeah. and it's, it's weird because some of them look at me, I, I think, uh, as being a, a little bit famous and a little, and having a very interesting life and, you know, getting to talk to kind of cool people that. Sure. That's fair. Yeah. And, and others of them look at me and go, wait a second, you, you have to, you know, you have to you don't really have a 401k. You don't really do, you don't have, you know, somebody else, you're not working for someone who takes the responsibility for kind of, you know, making sure you get paid at the end of the week. That's it. Uh, and, and it's, you know, and they'll, and they'll say to me, you know, are, are you constantly freaking out all the time on the inside? And yes, yes, I definitely do. I am. Yes. It's like, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, sometimes my books will end up in airport bookstores and that's really freaking cool that, you know, like that, that level has been hit, but they're not going to be there next week. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's uh, or they might, to be honest, that's the uncertainty, right? You just don't know. Right. Um, but it, it's also, I think it's actually the big gift, to, to be honest, and it's the part that I would never have imagined. If you talk to you know whatever twenty four year old me starting out in the industry, you know what are the things that fifty uh, one year old me would be most thankful for? And it is that it is the uncertainty. It is the great gift of not knowing where the hell the next dollar is going to come from, or the next mortgage payment. I mean, I, I, it's not like we're living. To, uh, hand to mouth. It's not that at all. But that idea of when this ends, there's a big wad of nothing waiting. Yeah. But that big wad of nothing, it's my responsibility to fill it. And I can fill it with anything I want. And that's the amazing, that's the amazing gift. And when you talk about 401ks, okay, I don't have one, right? And uh, I remember early in my career, the acting coach with whom I worked uh, when I when I hit it, like when I started working regularly and getting leads. That acting coach, when I landed my first lead, which was in this RoboCop miniseries, playing the son of RoboCop, I run into him on the street. You know, at that point in time, I still had my Joe jobs, right? Uh, because how else are you going to pay your bills? And I'm like, dude, I just landed this great gig. It's awesome. I'm playing RoboCop's son. Are you kidding me? It's the best. And, uh, you know, he'd seen the challenges I'd gone through as an actor because I worked with him before every single audition. You know, I just wasn't booking, wasn't, and all of a sudden, bang. And um, he didn't say congratulations. He didn't say that's awesome. He didn't say what's the series. The first thing he said to me was, what are you going to do with the money? That's it. The congratulations came later. And he was like, don't be an idiot. What are you going to do with the money? Yeah. And those kinds of guys uh, really framed the industry for me and the opportunity that you have. And the opportunity is, I don't have a 401k. I got to be my own 401k. I got to say, all right, well, at some point in time, I'm going to work a lot less than I'm working when I'm 25 to 45 or whatever. Uh, that's just the way the industry goes. And at some point in time, uh, I'm going to need that 401k. And what is it going to be for me? And uh, yeah, I mean, I've always had a pretty clear idea of how to 
how to try to do that. And, and that's been a really stimulating and fun, exciting part of my life as well that I spend a lot of time working towards, uh, including this whole law thing and whatever, where I was able to work at a real estate law firm and then parlay that into um, my own development company. And I, and I do that uh, as well. And that's super exciting, really stimulating, a lot of fun, um, you know, being a property developer in this, in this part of the world. It means a lot to me where I spend a lot of time. And um, it's something that doesn't require daily and immediate attention when you're, you know, land accumulating, doing whatever, but it, it requires consistent and long-term attention. And it's the kind of thing that meshes really, really well with, uh, like I just shot uh, the, the Hardy Boys this summer, um, which was really cool playing Fenton Hardy. And, uh, you know, I was able to, to balance that series with also my ongoing obligations um, to, to this, to my 401k, which is developing these properties uh, in, in Prince Edward County uh, outside of Toronto. And uh, yeah, that, that I would never have done ever had I not been forced to stare at the chasm of emptiness that is my 401k in Canada, we call them RESP, or RRSPs, uh, and say, okay, well, I don't have one. And my, my union, I mean, I, you know, I see how fast or slow <laughs> that, that RRSP, uh, you know, climbs. And it's not going to be from there that I live, you know, from the age of whatever onwards and, and pay for my kids and help them out, you know, buying houses when they, you know, have to buy into the ridiculous real estate market that exists right now. And so those are the, that's the gift, right? Like here, here's the gift, figure out what you're going to do to support yourself way, you know, for the next 40, 50 years. And I know that folks who say work like my father did as a teacher, worked real hard, was a great teacher at age 55. That was it. It's a great teacher's pension plan in Ontario. He retired making 75% of his, of his last average five years. And he was done. That was it from age 55 onwards. He could do whatever he wanted and the money was there for him. Um, so that was, that's one style of life. But having seen him go through it, I'm thankful for the gift of uncertainty and the gift of uh, self-reliance. I really am. And, you know, I don't know how it's going to turn out. We'll find out, right? The development game is... <laughs> Will you feel that way in 10 years? <laughs> I don't know, man. We'll find out. It's uh, so far so good. Uh, but, you know, that's uncertainty, right? I mean, you, you know, you know, you put out a, you put out a new uh, set of novels and uh, you don't know whether it's going to hit. That's that's true. I I'm I'm right now what about seven months away from my next series starting. Okay. And honestly, I have no idea what it's gonna do. Like you know, the companies, the 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 publisher has invested in it, and I put all of my heart and soul in it. But yeah, what the crap? I I genuinely don't know if it's going to hit the times list. Yeah. Or if it's gonna just totally fizzle out and disappear. And and it's. You know, it's that that uncertainty. Sort of fire in a bottle, isn't it? Like you just, you must have a, a bit of a sense though, because you've been in this for a little while. You, you've you achieved, as you said, you know, a, a level of success that, that, that some of your friends would uh, deem enviable. And, uh, you know, for many people starting out their careers as writers, I would say that they look at you and go, damn, if I had that, you know, I'd consider my, myself a success. So yeah, you can pat yourself in the back. You, you clearly understand in a certain sense, what one slice of the audience looks for. So how do you, how did you go about crafting this next series and say, okay, well, you know, cause it is, you are trying to hit an audience. You're not just writing for the heck of it. You're just saying, listen, I'm writing for an audience that I've developed and I want to deliver something that they like, but I don't want to write the same thing over and over again or else I'd write in my own existing worlds. So how do you, how do you think about that as, uh, as an author? 
you know, I, I, I try to think of it as a, a combination of what I want to do personally and what, what companies expect, what, what publishers expect from me, Brian McClellan, kind of the writer brand, yeah. but then also what the readers kind of have come to expect and know and like. And well, I'm going to stop you on that actually for a sec, because that's fascinating because you, you talk about readers and publishers as different entities, as if they might expect different things from you, which in, in, from a layman's perspective, you'd expect that the publisher is just trying to read what the readers want from you. And in the end, they should be the same thing. But can you, can you just expound a bit on that, on that difference? You know, I, I think, I think it is two different things and I think they're very close. Like they're not, super far apart because like you said yeah the publishers just want to sell books to people that want to read you know like so i kind of made my bones with the the powder mage series which is basically it's military epic fantasy kind of napoleonic yeah uh very sharps rifles meets magic kind of thing um and i when i finished it up you know i, I loved working in the in the universe and i i'm still i'm like i'm working on a novella in the universe right now just for fun I still love it and everything, but I, I look back on it and I, I think about, okay, what would I have done differently if, you know, from an experienced author's point of view, you know, what would I have changed? And, and so, so I kind of look back at it and I go, okay, what does a publisher see from that? Obviously they see the sales numbers. They see, you know, what kind of engage, fan engagement I get on social media, that kind of stuff. And then I, I, I try to look also at what, kind of the reader looks at because the the publisher has a very top-down view of of all of the various you know marketing factors and all that junk um but a reader you know they're just going at it from just themselves yeah. and maybe the few friends they've talked about the book with sure and and so so they're kind of coming into it you know the 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 publisher wants a consistent product you know that they're going to sell but a reader wants they want, you know, a couple of, you know, they want quirky characters. They want the fun sidekicks. They want, you know, the super badass point of view character. Uh, you know, they want, they want, you know, development. There's so much stuff that's moving around in kind of a, a reader's head that a publisher, you know, your editor will think about those things, but the publisher themselves, mm -hmm. the company putting out your book, they don't think about those things. You know, most of those people haven't read my books because you know, they put out dozens or oh, hundreds of, course, of books of a year. Yeah, yeah, that's a famous thing in the industry that nobody in the, in, in the movie industry, television industry, has ever seen anything, right? They're like, oh, <laughs> you were in Game of Thrones, fantastic, wonderful. They don't know that you were in Game of Thrones on one scene riding a horse and you got shot, but you, they see Game of Thrones, they're like, oh my gosh, bring that person from Game of Thrones in. I mean, literally, it's like that, right? Uh, yeah. It's a bit of a exaggeration, but I'm going to venture not much. No, no, I don't think so. It's... no. And, and so, yeah, there is that kind of, there's that separation. Those, those, there's the three different entities that are invested in me and I'm only one of those three. Yeah. And so I kind of have to figure out the balance of, of what I'm, what, what, you know, tightrope am I going to walk between all of those to make all of us happy yeah. rather than, you know, yeah, I could keep churning out the same world and I, I don't know, I could develop it and, and I could maybe I could probably figure out how to be happy with that. But you know, I I, I think that I, I think some authors are very happy to kind of and, and fortunate to work in one universe or um or or a 
across or for one publisher for the whole career, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But I really like, I don't know, I, I like learning from what I've done before and saying, okay, I'm going to take the things I liked and that I know other people liked. And I'm going to try to expand upon those, but also test myself a little bit. Um, you know, the new series, uh, it, it's got a lot more kind of political intrigue in it. Um, you know, I, I'm just trying to kind of push on various things that I find interesting. And, and I, was, I was kind of wondering from, a, from an actor's perspective, if you spend a lot of time thinking about your strengths and weaknesses as a character actor, you know, kind of, you know, for example, you know, whether you feel confident doing action scenes, but not romance, you know, which, you know, I'm projecting right there. I feel very confident doing action scenes, but I don't feel confident right. writing romance. Scenes. Sure. Yeah. Do you th spend a lot of time thinking about that and then thinking about what kind of, what level of effort you're going to spend on refining what you're good at versus yeah, sure. trying to improve what you're weak at? Wow. That's a good question. Um, I, th uh, uh, yeah, it, I mean, listen, I'm going to answer that as, uh, as me, the actor, not as, you know, this is the way actors are because, uh, you know, there are many, many different approaches to this craft. Um, my approach to this craft has been, my approach to life, to be honest, has been really a little bit like, uh, like a stick in a, a stick in a river. Um, I, you know, I've, I've trusted that the river is going to take me somewhere and, uh, it'll take me at the, at the rhythm it goes. And I have evolved into a comfort level with various different types of things. Um, I have not gone straight at saying, listen, I'm not good at this one thing, so I'm going to start becoming way better at this one thing. I've preferred to look at it more like I'm not going to get cast for those things that I'm not good at. It's that simple. The river's, gonna, the river's going to lead me in the direction of the roles that I'm, that I'm cut out to play. And if I have to force myself into a box to be someone I'm not, the truth is there's somebody out there who's already in that box who's way better at it than me. Nobody can be a better me than me. That's it. And no one can bring what I can bring, my particular set of strengths and weaknesses as, as a human being and my outlook on the world. Um, will craft a character that only I can craft. Um, doesn't mean other folks can't do it. They just do it differently. So for, for me, I haven't thought too much about that, but I can tell you that I, that, that is just because of who I am know that there are other actors out there who, who have done exactly that. I've said, listen, I, you know, I got to get better at X, Y, Z because this is the kind of thing that, I, that I'm going to be asked to play a lot of and da, da, da. And I'm not saying that that's better or worse. It's just not the way I've approached it. And, and um, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe I would have had a different career had I gone about it a different way, but that's not who I am as a person, right? So I think the process, of, the process for me of growth as an actor tracked very similarly to the process of me of growth as a human being where you know, fundamentally you spend, I don't know, your twenties and thirties, you know, I don't know, looking at the, uh, self-help books on, uh, whatever Oprah's top 10 or the New York times top 10 going, which one of these will fix me. And then at some point in time, you realize, no, I don't need any fixing. Um, and it's not because you're perfect because nobody is. It's that you're good enough, you know, like flaws and all it's good enough. You know, the world can accept seeing you for who you are. And, and in the end, that process, you know, again, being an actor forces you, gives you a lot of time to think about these things, but forces you into constant failure and why am I failing and why am I not getting the roles and whatever and can I change something? And, you know, you keep, if you keep banging your head against the same wall over and over again, how do you start to say, okay, well, geez, I really suck? Or you just say, okay, it's who I am. 
just let the river take me somewhere else. And, um, you know, I remember there's, there's something that stuck with me since I was a, a much younger, uh, about 20, 24. I had a, I had a girlfriend who was uh, studying to be a doctor at the time. It's not the person I ended up marrying, but of, uh, of, you know, there's one thing that always stuck with me and she was learning about the eye at the time that I was there visiting her. And, uh, she said, you know, it's an interesting thing that early astronomers learned about the way the human eye works when they were trying to see unassisted stars really, really far. And it turns out if you stare at it, you can't see it. But if you look beside it, your peripheral will see farther than you can actually see by staring straight at it. And I'm positive she didn't know that that would stick with me and why it stuck with me. I think probably is just because in the end, it spoke to something innate with who I am. I mean, heck, I've had this thing right here. I'll show it to you what I've had on my, on my, uh, somewhere in my house, on my desk, on my mantle for my entire life since I was in my, uh, since I started living on my own, started becoming an actor. And this is what it says. It's in French. Oh, man. I'll read it. Okay, yeah. That, that, that's not going to help me. <laughs> no. Si l'on sait exactement ce que l'on va faire, à quoi bon le faire? Which translates to, if you know exactly what you're going to do, then what's the good in doing it? <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, I know this is probably a bit of a meander away from the question that you asked, but fundamentally, it does drill back around to that idea of how do you approach things that you are or aren't good at, that you're, you're consistently being asked to do. Um, and for me, yeah, it's, it's, it's really been that idea of, of, of letting the river guide you um, and having experiences, doing them and not really knowing why you're doing them. Um, because in the end, that's the excitement. You know, that's the learning opportunity. So that's, I, I think that's a very cool perspective. And it, it goes back to, you know, what we were talking about of, of, of looking at failure or, or looking at the blank slate of the future, not as, you know, scary, but as opportunity. Yeah. And, and I, I think that that's terrifying to a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah, it was terrifying to me. <laughs> sure. I, and I think so, sometimes it's terrifying to me too. And and it's interesting that that you kind of have to, it's almost like, it's almost, you know, like how, you know, you, you say you say a, a drunk person falls off of the third floor of a building and they, they might actually walk away undamaged because their whole body's limp, you know? You're just kind of... <laughs> It's, it's this kind of like, uh, it's this kind of like a letting, like you said, letting the river take you, you know, kind of like. So spend your life hammered. There it is. <laughs> hey, Page Break listeners. Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pit. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar. $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. It's an interesting perspective because I think I like to have my little stick in the river uh, with an outboard motor on it so that I, I feel like I'm steering. <laughs> so you could actually guide yourself. Sure. Right. Sure. I mean, that's an, that's a version of it. I mean, listen, the truth is it doesn't, um, it isn't what we are taught. You know, we are taught to focus and drive and commit and all of those things. And, and I don't doubt that had I done all of those things, I would not be who I am today. Um, would I be a more successful actor? Uh, would you see me on the cover of every magazine? God knows that's the door I didn't walk through. 
Um, but I can tell you that um, there are many doors that I did get to walk through because I wasn't that person. And the doors that I have walked through, I'm proud that I walked through them. I'm, I'm grateful and I'm thankful for every single one of them. They haven't all turned out great, tell you that much. Nothing ever does in life. You never, you know, them bats a thousand, right? So, what I've been able to accumulate up until now in terms of doors and experiences and all that stuff, uh, I'm incredibly grateful for. And, uh, and, and it's largely this notion of letting the river, you know, letting the river take you there and, and being, you know, while, while it's taking you there, you've got to do something. You got to be active. You got to prepare yourself for where the river is going to take you. And, and you, it seems like you have some sort of agency over that uh, in the sense that, it has very frequently worked out in my life where I've sort of visualized something at some moment in time, you know, very strongly I visualized something and that ended up happening. Exactly that. Literally exactly that. I mean, I remember I was talking to Joe who we'll circle back to because you know, Joe and I know Joe and that's how we got yeah. together. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Cause that's quite exciting yeah. to me, by the way. Anyway, um, I remember I was talking to Joe at the beginning of this year and I was working at the law firm at the beginning of this year and I didn't, you know, people ask me, why did you go to law school in the first time? I, well, I went because I went. It was something I wanted to do. So I did it. And uh, same thing with going back, you know, after Dark Matter and whatever, uh, you know, why I finished that off? Are you plan on working as a lawyer for the rest of your life? I said, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm doing this because I'm doing it and it's a good experience. And so why not finish a path? And I did it and I worked at the law firm. And, you know, Joe asked me, um, and this is when I'd taken a couple a couple years off because you can't like do the bar and work full time at a law firm when you take a couple years off. You can't do that while working as an actor. I did on the French side locally because I work in French as well. I was able to do you know the gig. Uh, hey, I'll take a day off the firm and I'll go do this every once in a while. But in terms of like series regular stuff, you, like you, that's a world that's very difficult to to, to match. So I'd taken a bit of time off that. But I, you know, Joe said, "How's it going?" He asked me. I said, "Well, you know." It's going great. I'm loving it. He goes, well, what do you see in the future? I said, I'll be honest with you. I haven't told anybody, Joe. I haven't told my wife. I haven't told anybody. But if I could land a series regular role that wasn't the lead of a series, that had me in a couple days, uh, a series, a couple days, an episode, doing something cool, you know, uh, while uh, while also being able to jump full time into my property development company, that would be amazing. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. Like cut to literally a month and a half later and opportunities came by on both sides like where first I jumped into my development company and that's just because the little lady who you know who whose property we needed to complete the land assembly was ready to move at the right time and now we needed attention on that property and so I had to jump into it and then the day that I was packing my boxes at the law firm I was literally putting the you know the family picture in the box it's that whole thing my phone rings and it's my agent and she says, you've got an offer for a series. She said, I know you're working full time and I know you probably can't take it, but listen, it's only a couple days an episode uh, and it's a series regular. And uh, do you want it? It's on the Hardy Boys. And I was like, you don't understand how much I want that. I think that would be like literally almost perfect because it allows me to balance absolutely everything. And this has happened to me a couple times in my life. The very few, because I don't, it doesn't tend to coalesce, right? Where you have a really strong vision of, no, this is where I want to be in six months or a year. Specifically, as you might understand from the way that I think about life, that if you're in this river, it's taking you, right? But every once in a while, it crystallizes. And whenever it's crystallized, yeah, it tends to happen, which is weird. Don't ask me why, right? It's the river. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't do anything to get that call. It just came. 
because it, because of a guy that I'd worked with. Wait, in fact, you want to know how it happened? This is so the guy who was the showrunner on this series. Okay, that guy I knew because when I went to law school the first time. And I was working at the firm and I left the firm to go back to acting. I phoned a good buddy of mine who ran an agency and I said, listen, I know you don't have anybody negotiating your contracts because Canada, we can't afford lawyers for everybody. I said, listen, I don't want to close the door to all my legal stuff. I'm going back to acting. I'm going to stay in Montreal and I know you're in Toronto, but listen, if you want help negotiating all your clients' contracts, he's uh, in the writing side of things, right? So he reps a lot of writers, directors, says, I'll do that for you. I'm happy to do that. And he said, yeah, you know what? That's great. I'll do that. So I did that for him for seven years. And in the first sort of three or four of those years, he had an assistant who was answering telephones. And he and I got to know each other. Really great guy. And uh, that assistant ended up going on through the industry. You know, for those of you who don't know, a, a, a television writing room is a whole heck of a lot like a corporation or maybe something like the military where literally you can work your way from the mailroom on up, right? Like that's just the way it goes. You can start off as like a story coordinator who's basically just a glorified assistant running around handing out copies of the scripts and making sure everyone's commenting on things. And then you move to like the story editor where you get to, you know, read things and make... Yeah, the point is, I won't belabor that. The point is he started off and he worked his all his way up and this was his first gig show running. And he remembered, because I'd worked with him over over the years, he remembered we had a good relationship and whatever and he needed a dad to replace the guy who had done the, the role uh, in the first year of the series. And he said, why don't we bring in this guy? I know this guy. You know, uh, he's a decent guy, and I think he'd do a great job. And that call came out of the blue when I was packing my, uh, packing my bags to leave, uh, to leave <laughs> the law firm. Not thinking that I was going to go 100% back into acting, but then it came in, and, uh, and lo and behold. So it, it's it, these weird things where you just, the river takes you. Well, and it's an interesting kind of inside perspective of how – kind of these creative industries work because you can, I think you can make the assumption that, you know, the brilliant writers, the brilliant actors, the brilliant creatives always rise to the top. Um, and, and I think that there is, there's these levels that a lot of people don't understand is that it's not just about what you produce at the end of the day. It's, it's about, are you fun to work with? Mm. Are you a decent human being? Mm -hmm. Do you, you know, do you make life miserable for everybody around you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, because you know you kind of you have to so, sometimes you hear about those writers or actors or whoever sure. who are massively brilliant but also they're just assholes and they're hard to work with yeah for sure and and being able to kind of be good at your job but also but also a decent human being i think is underrated in the creative fields because everybody's always going to think about oh did I like being around that person for X number of days a week? Uh, and that's going to factor into whether they hire you. You know, I think you're 100% right. I mean, specifically in, in you know, I'd mentioned that there's it's just a different labor market in on, in Canada than it is in, in America, even though, you know, lots of folks wouldn't have even known that, that Dark Matter, say, was a show that was made in Canada. No idea. It was on an American station. So, you know, like, in, they wouldn't know. So, uh, without a doubt that, in Canada, on the sets that I have worked on, and there's there's different kinds of sets in Canada, and largely that you can sort of identify them by which union, which which uh, tech union is running the set, actually, whether it's uh, SAG or whether it's sort of more Canadian-based union. Um, and I tend to work on on the second, and, and Dark Matter, for instance, was uh, was one of those. Uh, it's a union called NABED. But anyway, the point is, um, 
on the shows that I have worked on, I would say, I don't think I've been on a set where people have been jerks. Sun exists. Like they're, they're more relaxed. They're easier. Maybe the stakes are lower because they tend to be lo- a little bit lower budget than, than, uh, than the SAG shows. Um, you know, like, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting, um, the difference between what we do in Canada and between what we would do if we were living in America is that because the stakes aren't there, because nobody's life is going to change miraculously. Yeah. We're going to have a great run. We're going to have a good series. Might be able to do some cool stuff, but in the end, nobody's life's going to change miraculously. That's just not the way the Canadian industry works. That is the way the American industry works. Um, I think it, it attracts a different mix of personalities and it tends towards what you just mentioned that, you know, if my life isn't going to change from this, really, I just want to hang out with people I want to hang out with. But if this asshole means that all of a sudden I'm launched into another stratosphere, right? Like then maybe I'll work with this asshole, right? (laughs) Maybe I'll do it because in the end, I get to work with this asshole, but I'm, I'm going to be somewhere like, you know, like I'm going to have a private jet at the end of it all. Right. So that's right. the trade off. Whereas you don't tend to have those types of, uh, those types of decisions presented to you in the Canadian industry. That's not to say people aren't doing well. I'm not trying to cry poor. People do do well, but there's a difference, right? There's a difference between that level of, of attainment uh, and the level of attainment that, that can be, you know, that is common in, you know, among successful Canadian actors or producers or writers, for instance, right? Yeah. And Joe is a great example of that. Bring it back to Joe. Now, which, who, which Joe am I talking about for the fans who, uh, for the fans who don't know Joe? <laughs> right, right. So Joe, Joe Malozzi, he's, uh, he, he got us together um, because, you know, he was, uh, he did Dark Matter and, uh, and he, fingers crossed, will someday do the Powder Mage series uh, as a TV show. Um, in fact, I really, I wanted to ask you about this because Joe sent me, uh, last week, um, I'm, I'm feeling really bad. I haven't gotten to it yet, but last week, Joe sent me the pilot, uh, that he wrote for powder mage right. and, uh, and asked me to give him notes back. And I have never, uh, it's been, it's been a long time since I've read a screenplay, probably since I was a teenager. Cause I, I got really into screenplays as a teenager. Um, but it's been a long time since I've read anything like that. Yep. But also, this is going to be the first time I've ever read something that's my own work being translated into something different. It's pretty cool. And I'm, I am both like, I'm both massively jazzed, <laughs> but also terrified. And there's, there's that mix of emotions of, of course, of yeah. like, of working to divorce any amount of creative ego I have from this other thing. Sure. That is based around what I've done. And, and I, I, I was really curious what your perspective as someone who, who not necessarily in that same situation, yeah. but as, as someone who gets a new script and, and is looking at a script from, you know, with fresh eyes for the first time, what kind of goes through your head? What are you looking for? Um, I, I'm, listen, there's, the script has two purposes. I mean, specifically at this stage, a script really only has one purpose, which is, when that network executive reads it, do they want more? Yeah. That's really it. Because in the end, the, the script itself isn't the end product. That's the wonderful thing about what we do uh, as, as creatives in the television and film industry. That um, truthfully, I have never thought of what I do as creating performances. 
because I don't. What I do is I, uh, I provide the ingredients for a really amazing cake, hopefully, <laughs> what I think is really amazing. And I give them off to someone else who will mix those ingredients the way they want to. And if they don't have the good ingredients, they can't have the good cake. And that's what a pilot is. Now, granted, it's, more, it's, a, it's a more essential ingredient than any one actor could be. Um, but in the end, it's this television production is this incredible array of creative people, all of whom are contributing ingredients to this cake that you hope will be amazing, that you hope everyone will want to eat. But in the end, nobody really has full 100% control over what that end product looks like. Not, and not even the producers in TV, because they, they only get to make a certain subset of decisions once everything else has been made, right? Yeah. Because there's producers below those guys who make the decisions about what costume I wear, whether it's green, blue, all these things, right? And any, if any one of those people cocks up their job, you know, if the costumes are crap, if the sound is crap, if the script is crap, if the actors are crap, if the lighting's crap, if like any one of those guys, if the fight choreographer is garbage, if, you know, the list is long, you don't have a good cake. Yeah. And then even then you can still have this amazing cake that people don't want to eat. <laughs> right? So it's this bizarre thing. And so getting back around to the pilot script, I think what's, what's fascinating when you read a pilot script is, does it make you want to read more? First off, secondly, understanding that I mean, I guess this is from an this is more from a uh, hey, we're two creatives and you're having your baby adapted for television. Understanding that, and I'm sure you do understand, but but like really putting it in your bones that they're different mediums, right? Like in a lot of ways, what you create is the cake, you know, and, and a very and a much smaller group of people get to contribute ingredients, whether that be the publisher and the and the editor and your wife or whomever. The point is, people, a smaller group of people create, but then in the end, I don't, I don't know who gives the final approval, whether it's you or the publisher, but the point is, when you put it out there, that's the cake, but that's different here, right? So this is what this is supposed to do is be the backbone of a really amazing story that other people will layer their intentions upon. And um, from what I understand of your world, you're not going to have a problem with that at all. It's going to be amazing. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's probably some difference in the manner in which a novel is structured and the manner in which a television series is structured so that in the end, you're, you're likely to see maybe uh, your characters, you know, used in slightly different manners or yeah. their reveals happening in slightly different manners than they would have in the, in the book. You know, again, I don't want you know, that's a joke question, not a mine, but from what I understand right. of television, um, you know, it, you know, this pilot will, will most likely be, you know, call it the first, whatever, the first chapter or two of your book, but then he might pull something in from chapter seven, pull it back and say, well, no, we need this character here because this character informs, you know, these people's lives. And in this first pilot episode, what we need to, we basically need to say, these are all the characters. These are all their arcs. These are who they are. And then at the end of it all, you need to still be like, oh my God, I want to see more about this character, this character, this character, this character. And so maybe the reveal in a book is a little slower or different. I don't really know. Um, but uh, in a pilot, uh, that's what you want when you're reading it. Um, and that's from an actor's perspective. It's what you want when you're reading it. Do I really want this? Do I want to play in this world? Do I think people will want to continue coming back to this world? And 
one of the things that I've always really appreciated with Joe is Joe is really good at bringing you in to a story through a character's eyes. Now, from the average audience's perspective, from the average reader's perspective, you would assume, okay, these are the heroes or the antiheroes because these, these are the eyes through which I am seeing this story. But what he's pretty good at subverting that, like he's really good at subverting this, the expectations that the audience has. And all of a sudden the heroes are doing things that you're like, heroes don't do that. Um, now that's complex and really fascinating and really interesting. And now I want to see more. And he's been very good at that throughout his entire career and was very good at that in Dark Matter. And, uh, and I don't know whether that's going to ripple through in your book, but it'll be interesting to see. We should have a conversation after you read it. Yeah. Aha. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I think Joe and I actually really clicked on that because I, I kind of grew up reading this classic, classic epic fantasy where uh, from the kind of the 80s and 90s where all the good guys are good, the bad guys are bad. You know, it's it's very straightforward sort of stuff. And and I, I looked at that and I loved it as a kid and it it soured on me as an adult. Sure. And I and I kind of started playing with this idea of having main characters who who they've seen some shit. You know, they are past their peak. You know, they're not the little farm boy that grows up to wield the magic sword. And I I think Joe and I really clicked on that of of creating these complex characters you know, good people that can do horrible things and horrible people that can do good things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I I love that. I, it's, it's so fun to play with. Audiences love that. And actors die for that stuff. I mean, really, it's like, it is, it's the mana. It's the stuff where you can subvert expectations of your audience. And all of a sudden you're the character that everyone loves when, when you were the character they hated. And then, Oh, wait a minute. Now I've done something stupid again, because in the end, isn't that just human, right? I mean, we aren't, we are never one thing. Uh, and, and if you talk to different people about, about one person, you'll get different perspectives about who that person is, you know, and it's interesting. So th- those multifaceted things, Joe's very good at. I'm happy to hear that you say that. Actually, I have a question for you about all that because yeah, yeah. in preparing for this, um, it occurred to me that I, I don't know whether um, 
you know, the events of January 6th where, and the Oath Keepers, and I'm going to get political here. It's going to be fun. Um, and folks rising to defend defend the nation if you're them. And uh, it would be described very differently if you're not. Um, in a way, you're playing, and I mean, you are straight up. That's how your that's how your first book opens. Like you're, you know, you're overthrowing the the existing the existing uh, government structure. And um, you know, when you wrote that, there wasn't there was no echo of that in American society. And now now there is, right? Um, in the sense that you know, again, I I don't want to read too much into it, uh, but without a doubt, had your book come out now. Some people would have read into it, this idea that, wait a minute, these guys are playing with guns, that, and it harkens back to an era, you know, harkens back to a, we'll call it like a Civil War type era. Uh, yeah, Americans. very revolutionary That's vibe. Right. Exactly, very revolutionary vibe, and uh, overthrowing what uh, the overthrowers perceive as a corrupt government institution. I wonder what you think about that. How, how has your book aged in light of where America has gone as, uh, as a, um, as a country? You know, I, I actually haven't thought about that much. Oh, wow. Um, I planted the seed. You know, you planted the seed. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I try, I try not to, I, I have opinions that I rarely share on social media, um, but I try to, I try to not spend a lot of time dwelling on things because I find they just put me in kind of a despair cycle. Fair enough. Um, you know, I, I have a bit of that stereotypical millennial anxiety of, wow, am I living on a dying planet? You know, will, you know, will we all, will our, our civilization collapse before my death? You know, uh, that kind of existential dread thing going on. Yeah. Um, but I, if I engage with it, I'll, fe- I'll be miserable. Um, so I try Fair not enough. to. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think I do uh, occasionally I will get you know, like a piece of fan mail from somebody who, who reads my books very differently than the way I read them. Sure. Of course. That's art, isn't it? And, and oftentimes it'll be a bit of the gun toting right wing sort of feel. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I don't, I don't agree with that, but I, I spend a lot of time trying to examine perspective and trying to understand where people come from what factors created their opinions, even if I don't like them, mm-hmm. um, even if I think they're abhorrent, I still try to think, okay, what built this? Because these things aren't created in a vacuum. And, and I don't know, coming, coming to it from my books, you know, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's something subconscious there of, of me backing slightly away from the military aspect in my new series, mm-hmm. which it's still very much there. I mean, the, the fans that got into my Powder Mage books are gonna, they're gonna really enjoy what I'm putting forward. But it's, I don't know, the, the complexity of 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 all of the real world questions around overthrowing a government around mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in major institutions things like that it's so much more complex than anything i could portray on a page mm-hmm. because as a writer you, you're summing up feelings you know you're you're trying to dumb down the complexity of a billion factors into something the average person can understand in reading a paragraph and that is that that makes kind of my job and my the way that I engage with my creativity versus the real world. That's that's tough. 
And like I said, I, I guess I try not to think about it too much because maybe it's a little overwhelming. Yeah, I bet. Well, particularly, because, I mean, listen, you didn't write it in a, in a context. Yeah. And I, and I wonder, uh, I wonder if what you wrote would have changed, uh, you know, had you been writing it now. Mm -hmm. um, listen, you're not, you're not the first, you are hardly the first creative uh, storyteller in America to write a revolution story. Right. All right. Uh, we... It is perhaps the great export of America. I mean, looking at it from the outside, is that you have this foundational myth that you keep spinning in various different sort of fractals of that creation, that that creation of a nation myth, and you've been quite successful at selling that story to the world because fundamentally, it's a story that we all, you know, it ties into so much of sort of Judeo-Christian beliefs. Really, it does. I mean, again, we're getting really serious, but this notion of you know, sacrificing for a greater good, uh, sacrificing for the good for the future. I, I am, I am going to redeem the sins of the past with my actions and set set the course of history straight. It's fascinating and interesting, and I can tell you, Canadians, you know, we are. If there's one fundamental difference between our nations, considering how cr close we are on most things, it's that our foundational myth is ultimately boring. Our foundational myth <laughs> is yeah. a bunch of dudes sitting around at a table negotiating a contract and compromising. I mean, literally, that's the foundational myth. It's, listen, if we don't get together, we're going to get eaten up by the Americans. We don't really want to get together. I have a burning desire to, you know, me as a French person to hang out with you as an English person. But the alternative's worse. So let's hammer out the best possible deal we can, protect ourselves from each other, and let's just see if we can make it work. I mean, literally, that's our foundation myth. That you try spinning that into a, a global uh, a set of stories and movies, and impossible. But what's so fascinating to me about about the American foundational myth is how often it is retold. It really is, and and it's interesting because you you offered something up there that I wanted to pull on the, the idea of sacrifice, because everybody, I think everyone is willing to sacrifice for a better future but it's what they are willing to sacrifice and what future they're looking at. You know, you look at, Correct. you look at certain people and, and what they, they're willing to sacrifice, you know, their bodily, you know, their bodily harm. They're willing to lay, lay down their lives or be injured or anything, yeah. but they're not willing to sacrifice, you know, a portion of their income, you know, like, right. and, or the opposite, the very opposite is, you know, some people look at, you know, what do I sacrifice? Okay, I sacrifice some of my income. I sacrifice some of my time, but I would not fight in a war. Right. Not a chance. Like, and so you have these various perspectives of what people think of in terms of who they are, who they want to be, what what they would give up right. to make the world better in their perspective um, to the future generations. Yep. You know, I, I think about perspective like, like my... Uh, my powder mage books are very influenced by kind of the French revolution yeah. and that whole period of time. And if you look at, if you went to 1820 and asked a British person about Napoleon, he's the antichrist, you know, but looking back on it, like I, I kind of, I kind of, I, I think Napoleon's admirable in a lot of various ways. And, you know, clearly he went nuts. <laughs> clearly the, the Napoleon of freedom and, you know, all of this stuff became a different person, became emperor. Became an emperor. Right. There it is. <laughs> and and so there's 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 this complexity there that you you can look at the reforms he did, 
you know, when he came to power and you look at some of them and they're, they're a century ahead of their time. Yeah. And you look at others and you're like, oh, wow, he took a big step back. Yeah. Um, and, and all of these things are massively complex. And, you know, when you're creating a world, you have to dumb all of that down. You can't explain every facet of every decision. Mm. You've got to bring it down until it's yeah. palatable and consumable to an audience. I mean, I think this notion of, of dumbing down versus, say, distilling. Okay, distilling is a better word. I think, yeah, dumbing down is, yeah. I think, does a disservice. Well, it does a disservice to you. I mean, and to you um, and, to, and to writers. I mean, in the, in the, and I think maybe also does a disservice to how stories impact people. Um, and I don't think there is a stronger way of teaching uh, or relaying impactful information or emotional content or societal myths than storytelling. I, I mean, it, it's been around forever. It's not going any way. What is it? We tell seven stories over and over again to ourselves. In a way, what you're doing is you're saying, listen, the, there are a set of facts. These set of facts are incredibly complex, but they fit within our storytelling, within a, sto- you know, a storytelling framework that you will understand, that will be impactful to you. You will internalize it, and then you will learn from it and move forward. And, and I think that's the process that, that, that tends to happen in this distilling or dumbing down. Um, it's in order for us to be able to emotionally connect with something that's very difficult to connect with if it's overly complex. And we don't tend to learn from overly complex things. Well, and, and in our real lives, all of these feelings are met with emotion. You know, yes. we all have a remotion, emotional yeah. response. You know, even even just you saying, you know, the the January sixth events, yeah, that that will create an emotional response in most of my readers yes. in, or listeners, readers and listeners, in one way or another. Yes, and so I like what you said about that that way of of taking all of this stuff and putting it into a story and getting it to be relatable um, in a way that that people can digest. Because it because it does it takes the emotion of your real life out of it mm-hmm. and lets you kind of see see a different perspective maybe or maybe yeah. just digest things in a different way without kind of you know like a hardening in the pit of your stomach that you might get from you know even even things as personal as understanding your alcoholic aunt you know who whatever sure yep. it, it kind of changes the way you look at things i i was really curious what your relationship as an actor is with the writer is there a relationship because i imagine oftentimes you don't even speak to the writer yeah that's true and i'm yeah. very curious what how you feel about the writer of the scripts that you've been given yeah so i mean the, essentially for those who, who who know the industry a little bit less um the higher you are up on the call sheet to number one, the closer your relationship is with, with the writer. If you're, you know, number 17, you're coming in, you got it, whatever that you're not going to go in there and start saying, Hey, listen about my character. I thought, no, just get in there say the words, move on. Cause he's got 16 people who are more important than you, you know, basically to the telling of the story. And, um, so, you know, if you are someone who's fairly central to the, um, to, to the nexus of what the story is, right. So if, call it a series regular but even within that there are series regulars that carry more of the the story burden than others um the relationship of the actor if you t- if you're lucky enough to be in those top three four five six it's one of a collaborative employee in a way right in the sense that you know he's the boss you know his say goes in the end he's not the only one who say goes you know there's the director and the producers many other people who say goes and sometimes honestly you'll literally get conflicting you'll be like, oh. Uh, I, I, you know, the producer will call you in his office. Like, listen, I know the writer wants X, Y, Z, but 
Uh, and you're like, oh, okay, great. I'll just give, you know, in the end, I, like I said, I, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple versions and you guys decide whatever the heck you guys want in the final. Um, but then, but then, you know, you can go in there like with a guy like Joe, especially you can say, listen, like three is a really good example. If you've ever watched dark matter, for those of you out there who watch dark matter there, you know, Joe had a direction. He was going with that character. I love that direction. It was amazing. Uh, and then I had input on where, what I thought was fascinating about that direction. And if that input speaks to the writer, then, you know, they'll put that, they'll filter that through their understanding of the show and you and whatever else. And it can sometimes affect what the end product is, you know, um, in the, in the most basic and simplistic way, uh, you know, writers, because unlike a novel, which is written, then it's put out there. Most series in, in English Canada, anyway, French Canada is a little different, but most series in English Canada are not all written and then shot. They write an episode or two, and then they they shoot them, and they see who they've got, and they go, "Oh, this actor's really good at X, but he's not so good at Y." So let's write more X, right? Or these two characters have a fantastic chemistry together. They weren't supposed to be together in a lot of scenes, but man, we got to find a way for these guys to be together because fundamentally, I just love watching them on screen together, right? And then there's stuff like in 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 Dark Matter where, um, listen, what I found the coolest about Dark Matter was. Uh, at least, but my character in Dark Matter was, you know, for those of you who have who don't know me or just listening to me, I'm a, you know, I'm a middle aged white guy. Okay, so that carries a fair amount of baggage in today's society, and you will be attributed certain uh, characteristics. And I think what's fascinating about the character three in Dark Matter, and what's great about sci fi and fantasy, is you can speak in allegory, right? Mm-hmm. So we can head straight on into white guy versus change, right? Fundamentally, i.e. white guy versus how do I deal with this, you know, this fact that the world that I grew up in is not the world that I live in anymore and it's not the world that's going to exist in the future. And how do I find my way in it when fundamentally the characteristics that are traditionally attributed to the middle-aged white guy, you know, might might be more closely aligned with the MAGA group than it would be with, say, you know, something on the left. And I loved that. I loved the fact that, because I am a middle-aged white dude, right? And I loved the fact that Joe was just sailing square on in that territory, saying, all right, how do you deal with change? How do you deal with stuff that makes you really uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. And, and, and how do you deal with that in a way that is respectful to the human being that has to bear the change? It is, I, I, think it's, I think our television has done, on the whole, a really good job of pushing our society forward right? Yeah. Television, generally speaking, is made, you know, on the whole by folks on the left side of the spectrum, not entirely, without a doubt that we are not a monolith, but I think it's probably not a stretch to say that most television is made from the left side, uh, from the left side of the, of the spectrum, where on the whole, change is good, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, more individual rights, more individual freedoms, um, and, and more respecting of, of diversity uh, of, of everything, gender and, and, uh, and, and race. And, and I think, you know, from my personal political perspective, that's great. Wonderful. Except, you know, I also live in the real world um, where in America, say, in a shorthand, there's 50% of the people who are of a different political ilk and they come at life from a different perspective. And I feel like that perspective is often misunderstood or misrepresented in the television that I watch. And I felt like three was a really great opportunity and Joe just went straight at it of breathing life into a character that otherwise could have been two-dimensional at the hands of a perhaps a more politicized uh, or less talented writer. And um, for me, that was, when I see that stuff as an actor, man, holy, that's just, that's gold. Because I, 
I do believe in what you were talking about, this idea of, you know, walk a mile in someone's shoes. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there's a whole heck of a lot of that going on right now on either side of the political divide in America and uh, similar, up, similar up here where people seem to be lacking the ability to put themselves in others' shoes. And I'm not saying I'm so great and I can, but, but, I'm, but I am saying that Joe seems to be able to do it and he seems to be able to write characters that can do it. And that's really exciting. And I think given the world that you play in, I think it bodes well for your uh, for the work that you guys are going to do together. I, I sure hope so. Cause I, I do, I, I like you, I, I love the complexity of, of trying to examine all of all, all of the perspectives on any topic and, and figure out where people came from to reach whatever conclusions they've reached. Yes. hundred percent. And it's, yeah, it, it's, I do think it is, it is dangerous. It feels sometimes like social media is a global trauma response against modern change (laughs) because you just have, so everyone's screaming about everything that they hate at all times. At all times. And, and it's the, the, what you said about change is a huge thing and it's, and it, and it's weird because in a lot of ways it is part of the change itself is part of the kind of American, you know, myth. 100%, yes. And yet we're all terrified of it at all times. We're all terrified it's going to be the wrong change. Yep. And that it's, you know, we're not going to come out ahead somehow. And the world that I was born into will no longer exist and I won't be able to leave that to my kids. And I totally agree. And the irony is for those of us who are children of immigrants, we created that change, right? Right. Just by the act of my existence and my parents coming to Canada, it was no longer the country that, that, that it was prior to my parents arrival but yes continue sorry i interrupted there no no that that's great i i mean and and america one of the strange weird parts about our kind of our our historical myth is is that we did we just took everyone from everywhere yes and built something better out of the different parts and i i love that i i think that you know you know kind of that that applied across life is honestly kind of a great philosophy and i i feel like we we've lost that a bit and it makes me sad i would agree um have we lost it tough to say i i don't i don't know that we the public discourse is certainly that we've lost it um although i'm i'm less convinced that the positions are as ossified uh, on either side as public discourse would have you believe I'm far less convinced that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll call it folks on the Republican side um, are as anti-change or anti-immigrant or anti-new as they are being uh, attributed in, 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 I mean, really in almost every single media, even their own media, to be honest. Yes, it's, it's, it's true that I think their vision of America might depart from someone who is more, more say, based in a city you know, Democrats tend to tend to, to to live in cities a little bit more than than Republicans do. And to be honest, the divide is similar up here in Canada. Um, but man, just go live in you know you live in Utah. I don't know where you live in Utah, but we did go live in uh, in the country for, for five six years. And I'm not from the country. Um, and you go live there, and you meet people whose experiences of the government are very very different than yours uh, when you live in a city. Um, and all of a sudden you start understanding, oh, wait a minute, there is another way, <laughs> another way of looking at the world. And yes, you know, this notion of conserving what you have seems to be a, a backbone of conservatism, at least in Canada, i.e. what we have is good. Let's not change it. Uh, or at least let's, uh, let's keep, keep the good of it. Um, but I'm, I don't know that that necessarily means that 
that any change is bad or the correlation is that we can't take the good from from different from different new arrivals uh, or different trends and 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 change with it um but i don't know you know i haven't lived in republican america uh, i i do have family that are staunch republicans um and i've i've spoken to those guys and they are immigrants they are the change right so again i think it's a little more complex like you know to, to your idea of complexity it's a little more complex than just you know than than a certain side of the political spectrum being against change uh, and and, uh, and a certain side being for it. Well, and there's there's a difference that you can kind of suss out of there between what does a person actually believe and what does a person go along with? And that, <laughs> yes. And, that, and that I think applies to any political belief whatsoever. Yes. Um, because, you know, like it's, it's always funny whenever you see, you know, like just even like a, a thread pop up on Reddit. I think this even the other day I saw this, somebody said, you know, lefties of Reddit, what are, what is your most conservative belief? And just, you know, scanning through this kind of stuff of, you know, people who consider themselves a a very hardcore Democrat, what is their thing that they don't really, they don't gel with everyone else. And you get this complexity to beliefs, Uh, you know, and you can do that the same thing with, you know, somebody who votes a straight Republican ticket, you know, if you get them alone and have a chat with them about a dozen different topics, they might not be nearly as Republican as you would think just from looking at their voting record. 100%. And it's it's weird because we do, you know, it, we talked about dumbing down or distilling. And so we have these kind of massive corporations that are running the news systems that distill everything or dumb down everything. And then feed us what we're supposed to believe. And it, yep. it's really, it's def. I mean, like, uh, you know, 200 years from now, there will be, you know, people will be doing their doctorates on this sort of kind of how propaganda affected the world during this time period. And, yep. and I'm, I, I actually, I love playing with propaganda in my books because I think a lot of writers don't, mm. you know, the idea of either good guys or bad guys steering public perception through, you know, well-aimed newspaper campaigns, you know, that kind of stuff. It's it it borders on complexity that that might go beyond the average reader, I think. Mm. Um but that I just absolutely ab- adore playing with. And for sure you could see it every time there's you know, every time there's an election coming up, all of a sudden there's wow, there's way more coverage on leader X or uh, leader Y in the paper than there used to be. And how did that happen? How did the paper all of a sudden, you know, yeah, of course, you know that it's it has to do with the, sometimes the relationships between, you know, the press and, the, uh, you know, whatever. It is what it is. And it, it exists in film and television as well, right? Uh, where where in the end, you're often quite copacetic with each other because the relationship works for the person who's got the actor in front of them reviewing the movie and for the person who needs to have the movie reviewed. Um, and, and in the end, yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, listen, I, getting back to t- sort of that, you know, in America, this idea of Republican voters versus Democratic voters, you, you guys, you're sort of stuck in it because you've got this two two party system, for better or for worse, that you're you're by necessity, you're going to just say, All right, I'm holding my nose, right? That center fifty percent or whatever it is, yeah, that don't ascribe to absolutely every single party platform, uh, they're gonna be holding their noses, right? They're gonna say, I believe a little bit more of this than I believe of that, so I'm voting for this. And all of a sudden now they're lefties. And they're Democrats as opposed to Republicans. Right. And in the end, they could have just maybe as easily voted the other way. 
had there been, you know, six or seven policies that changed. Um, yeah. And I'm not even talking about that 5% that flipped back and forth. I'm talking about the, you know, the, call it the, the centrist elements of each of the parties that haven't voted anything other than their parties for 20, 30, 40 years. But the truth is, are they really that far apart? You know, how much of the Republican Party uh, platform are they going? Yep, 100%. You know, probably not. You know, there might only be a small 10% of the, of the or, or 15 or 20, I don't know what it is, that is really 100% either. Uh, Democrat or Republican. And yet in the end, it's almost tribal over there, isn't it? <laughs> in a way, right? Which is uh, a little different than up here. Yeah. I, I joke with my friends that when I lived in Ohio 10 years ago, I would have been considered a bit conservative. But when I live in Utah, I, I am a bleeding heart of liberal. Of course. There's uh, like, I didn't change. No. It's kind of what's around me and the perspectives of the people. And, yeah. and it's it's a weird place to be at when you don't really hardcore consider yourself something, but you kind of are, are very aware of what other people think about your personal opinions. Well, as a, as a public figure, I imagine, especially someone who actually storytells, I mean, I imagine people do care uh, about what you, what you have to say. I mean, during the, during the last election, is that something that, that played on you? Did you, did you think about that? Were you, you know, on social media, for instance, uh, or in any of your media, say podcasts or whatever, were you commenting on the election? No. I, I think I made maybe one post in the 2016 election and one post in the 2020 election. I just... Wow, i.e. go vote, something like that, right? Yeah, essentially. I mean, I don't think I make it a secret, kind of what I, yeah. in the end, kind of what I believe in. But also, I don't really want it to be my public figure. You know, there's a lot of writers and a lot of actors sure. who who make that part of their brand is... is this is who I am, and this is my political stance. This is my religious stance. This is everything, and it's not you. And you know, I I'm a fully formed person, just like any of them. But I don't necessarily want the public to really know that or care about that when they're reading my books. Fair enough. And I think I don't know. And sometimes I think maybe I'm a coward, you know, for that. You know, maybe I should have more strict online beliefs. Mm. And other times I think, you know what? I already have a problem with anxiety. <laughs> I don't need to be thinking about what strangers online think about me. Yeah, fair enough. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't need somebody tweeting, you know, horrible shit at me every day because I believe something. Oh, because that will happen for sure. Yeah, yeah. The second you, the second you put a strong belief of any stripe out there, then all of a sudden you you attract the exact opposite. Um, yeah, I think it might be it's tough to know. I think it might be wise of you to be honest. Uh, it's I uh, yeah, it's tough. Uh, and there's so and there are so many opinions uh, on on social media as it is. And in the end, I think probably the most important opinion that anyone can express is, you know. Um, can't we all just get along? <laughs> I mean, fundamentally, it sounds ridiculous in Sesame Street, but boy, oh boy, right. when, you know, when you see the Facebook leaks come out, uh, it, it actually, you know, it actually is perhaps the the fundamental takeaway from it all that that whether it's media or uh, or social media, um, people are monetizing, dividing us, and man, that sucks. Like to give social control over just because I want a free Google search on something or a, a free share my best life platform um, mm -hmm. to, to hand it over to folks who really don't seem to care about social cohesion. Uh, and why should they? Wow. Um, that's uh, it's a bit of a revelation and I'm, I'm hoping that it, it changes the landscape moving forward. But 
What are your thoughts on that? Will it change the landscape moving forward? You know what? I, I'm, I, I, I find myself, I find the cynic in me and the hopeful in me, but <laughs> you know, like I don't believe anything will get better, but I hope it will, Yeah, you know, like yeah. I just, I don't know. I, and maybe that's kind of just like, like I said, maybe that's a little bit of the coward's way out because I don't, but I, I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like things will change. That's just human civilization. Yeah. But I have no idea how they're going to change or in what ways or if they'll be good or bad or if history will regard them as good or bad. You know, these are all, there's a million different ways to look at these things and you never know. But man, I, I've been keeping you forever. Uh, and so I, I wanted to, I always wrap up these episodes by asking oh, okay. every guest, All right. what's the last thing that you ate that still you think about right now? That just blew your mind. Oh, I mean, literally, it's actually quite recent, uh, which is good because I have probably the memory of a mosquito. But um, I went yesterday with a, a buddy of mine, two days ago, actually, with a buddy of mine uh, to his, uh, to his like, his heritage town, right? You know, where his grandfather was mayor and he's got all his old uncles and whatever else. And there is now a little bakery in the schoolhouse that was his mother's one-room schoolhouse. Okay, this is rural Quebec. Yeah. And uh, he showed me the, you know, the pond that he used to skate on as a kid. And, no, oh, that's my uncle's house. And that's my other uncle's house. And that's, you know, this kind of thing. And I went to this one-room schoolhouse and I walk in and it's this bakery and it is to die for. And they, uh, so we had our lunch at the bakery. That was really great. And I noticed they had all these lovely cakes and there was this beautiful, uh, Simple, right? Like uh, sort of halfway between a a, a mousse and a pudding cake, like you know, like a flan and a mousse, halfway between that chocolate with uh, with cherries on, uh, sorry, with raspberries sort of on top, and and not no glazing, no nothing, just the raspberries and a slight dusting of uh, of powdered sugar. Bought it, brought it home, ate with my family, um, and man, it was great. It was wonderful, partially because the story, um, but also because the food was lovely. Oh man, I love a good bakery. Mm-hmm. Walking into a bad bakery is one of the most disappointing experiences of my life. It really is. Where you because you get you you see a new bakery and you think, "Holy crap, new bakery!" Right. This I'm going to try something new that I've never tried before. That's right. And then you walk in and it's it's not good. Yep. But when you find one, find one that just blows your socks off. It's just such a good experience. Hundred percent. I I totally totally agree. That was actor Anthony Lemke. Thanks again to Anthony for coming on to chat. You can find links to Anthony's social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. One quick final announcement. The podcast is going on hiatus for a couple of weeks during the Thanksgiving holiday, so we'll see you all back at the beginning of December. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson and Patrick Hunt for their backing on Patreon. Mom. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.